When I first became a Christian in my late teens, uh, the first few Easter's I had, I kind of walked into the church with a mentality that said, oh, I wonder if the preacher is going to bring something new today. I wonder if he's going to give me a new perspective on Easter. I wonder if I come in, he's going to show me something I've never seen about Easter before. And the more I've grown as a Christian, the more I've realized, actually, what I need at Easter time is not something new. What I need is to be told the old story that the church has been proclaiming for the last 2,000 years. So that's exactly what we're going to do today. There's not much new. I'm going to tell you stuff you've heard before. But if you're anything like me, we need to hear it again and again and again and never grow tired of the truth of the resurrection. So grab those Bibles. We're going to be in Luke and the end of chapter 23, moving through the beginning part of chapter 24. So the book of Luke, if you want to grab those black hardback Bibles on the ends of the pews, it's going to be page 1065. 1065, if you brought your own Bible, have that open. You can get it open on your phone or your tablet as well. But that's Luke chapter 23, kicking off in verse 50. I'll give you a moment or two to turn there. We're going to tell the Easter story here. Now, I think most of us can say, most of us can say across our lives, we have known the difference that a day can make. I think we've all got an experience somewhere in our histories where we can say, yep, I saw the difference that 24 hours made. Uh, Now, maybe sometimes uh, you're feeling fit as a fiddle. You're feeling great. Things couldn't be better. And the next day, you've been struck down with the flu that everyone else has got. Oh, the difference a day can make, yeah. Or or some days we we can be basking in great British, great British sunshine. And the next day, we're covered in drizzle. Oh, the difference a day makes. Sometimes we can feel uh, soaring high in the clouds with optimism, uh, feeling good about life. And the next day, we're down in the dumps and wondering why we feel as low as we do. I can remember back in 2015, my wife and I, Quincy, we were waiting for our UK visa to come through. She's from Seattle, so she needed a visa to come and live here. And it was a really tense time because we had two visas denied and we needed this visa to come quickly because I had to leave the country. My visa in the U.S. was up. We needed an answer and we needed it within two weeks. So there was a sense of anxiety. There was a sense of worry and concern. Our prayer lives just went through the roof. And then when we got that visa, life was completely different. We were rejoicing. We were happy. Our futures made a little bit more sense. Oh, the difference a day can make. Oh, the difference a day can make. Now, the Easter story proclaims that truth in a way we could never experience in our everyday lives. The Easter story is the difference that that day made. So here's what I want to do this morning. Really, really simple. What I want to do is to just say, Easter, that day makes a massive difference. So what we're going to do, we're going to dig into what it must have felt like, what the disciples and Jesus' followers were thinking and feeling from Good Friday into Holy Saturday. Then we're going to ask the question, well, what actually changed? We know what that is, the resurrection. And then we're going to finish by saying, well, what difference does that make? Really simple. Where were they? What happened? And then what difference does Easter actually make? The difference a day So let's jump in here, this whole paragraph at the end of Luke 23, verse 50. I'll start reading. Now, there was a man named Joseph, and he was from the Jewish town of Arimathea. 
He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. Uh, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So let's just set the scene at the end of Luke 23 right here. Most of us know the story pretty well. But here we have Jesus' followers now wondering what on earth is going on. Because they'd spent the last three and a bit years learning from Jesus, following Jesus, watching him heal people, watching him show an uncommon level of compassion, watching him proclaim his divinity to the world around him. They had seen him bring pockets of life into the world that they lived. They'd seen all of this. So they had placed so much hope in this individual. So much of their meaning and their purpose was wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. And then what happens is Jesus ends up standing before these authorities, before the council, before Pontius Pilate, before Herod, and he's rejected and condemned to be crucified. So then his followers, they know the news pretty well. They've witnessed this. Jesus is then nailed to the cross. They see him cry out from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They see him breathe his last and cry out, it is finished. And all of a sudden, the voice of Jesus that they had heard ringing in their ears for the last three or so years had fallen eerily silent. You see right here, it's Friday. It's Friday in this passage. And this is the beginning of the Jewish Sabbath. So Jewish Sabbath is going to begin nightfall on Sunday, run for 24 hours until nightfall on Saturday. And the beginning of a new week was going to be Sunday. Now, on the Sabbath, you didn't do anything, especially prepare bodies for burial. So they get Jesus down from the cross and they can't prepare him in the usual way for burial. So they just lightly wrap him in some linen and endeavor to come back after the Sabbath to prepare his body for death with, with, what does it say right there, with ointment and spices. Now, I want to dig into a little bit what was actually going through their minds. What was, what was going through their hearts? What was it that they were thinking and feeling throughout this, this eerily silent Saturday? What was going on? I think we can understand. I wonder if you in your life, you've ever felt ab- abandoned. And maybe you can point to that point in your life when you can say, yeah, yeah, I, I felt left behind there. I, I felt forsaken. I, I kind of felt rejected. I kind of felt like I was left on my own to do my own thing. Well, if you ever felt that before, then maybe you have a window into how Jesus' followers were feeling right there. I'm sure for a lot of us, we've got those painful experiences in life where we could say, "I, I wish I wasn't on my own there. I wish somebody had said something. I wish somebody had broken the silence. I just felt left behind and forsaken. I felt like I was abandoned. Have you been there before? There's a window into how they were feeling. Or or I wonder if you've ever felt that sense of purposelessness before. I know for a lot of us in here, perhaps, life just feels monotonous. You know, work, it's just work. (laughs) Marriage, well, that could be better. 
don't really know what life is supposed to be. I don't really feel significant. I just feel it's just one day after another and it hasn't changed in decades. I just don't really feel a sense of purpose in the way that I do life. I wish I could... If that's you, you've got a window into how they were feeling on the, in the dark valley of Saturday. What about, what about feeling low? What about feeling downcast? What about feeling anxious? Feeling depressed? There's plenty of us in this room, I'm sure, who've had that dark cloud of depression descend on your life. And this is get really, really difficult just to get out of bed in the morning. And you've got everyone else around you saying, oh, just, chi- just, just chin up. Come on, you can get on with it. You can feel better. This cloud of de- depression will dissipate at some point. Just get on with the day. And nobody else around you seems to understand what's going on. You just feel numb and you feel passive. You don't really know what to do with the day or everyone else around you. Have you been there before? Well, then you know. <laughs> this is what these people perhaps are feeling like. How else are they feeling? A sense of loss. Pretty much all of us are going to know what that feels like. We've lost loved ones. We've lost friends. We've lost something we placed so much hope and value and love in. You know what that feels like, don't we? We know that that knot in the stomach that comes when we hear that news. We know that agony that we seem to feel throughout our bodies, even into our fingertips. It just hurts in every fiber of our being. We know what that sense of loss feels like. Well, if you're there, you know what that feels like? Then we're here. And and you know what it feels like just to cry out, God, I thought it would be different. I I thought it would be easier than this. I didn't think I was going to feel so confused. God, could you just make my life a little bit easier? Why does it have to be so hard sometimes? Why did that happen to me? Why did that happen to them? I just feel confused and I can't see through the fog here. We've said that before. Well, then, if if you know any of that, then we've got a window into what's going on from Good Friday into Saturday. There's just silence. They had the voice of their Messiah ringing in their ears for three years. And now there was this eeriness of silence as they plodded through the dark valley of Saturday. But we know the silence is broken. The dark valley of Saturday doesn't go on for the rest of their lives. There's, a, there's good news here. So let's read verse 1 of chapter 24, where the silence is broken. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared. Now, who is the they right here? Who's preparing the spices and the ointment? Well, further down in the passage, we see it's Mary Magdalene, it's Joanna, it's Mary, mother of Jesus, and other women with them. So they're coming to the tomb to do what would have normally happened straight after Jesus had been taken down from a cross, the normal burial practices to prepare the body so it doesn't stink so much in the coming days. Put those spices and ointments on. Great. Verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Look at this, beginning of verse 4. And while they were perplexed about this. I don't know about you, but you know we've been studying through Luke over the last year or so here at BRBC. And tons of occasions we can find within Luke and these other gospel writers, we find Jesus saying very, very obvious statements. I will suffer, but I will rise. You can destroy this temple, but in three days it will be raised up. 
I don't know how many times Jesus told his followers that that was going to happen. So I kind of think, well, hang on a second. Why are they, what's the word, perplexed? Why are they feeling perplexed when they see an empty tomb? It seemed to make sense. I wonder if it's like, you know when you're in, in the living room and you're watching the news or you're watching a program, an episode, a show that you love, and you think to yourself in the middle as you're watching it, you think, oh, I must go to the kitchen and write that on the calendar. Oh, oh yeah, okay, after the news, I'll go and write that in the diary. Or, oh, I know what I have to get from the fridge. I'll go do that after this show is finished. Or, or oh, yes, we, oh, yeah, I need to prepare that for tomorrow. That's what I'll go and do. And then you get up after the show, you get up after the news, you walk into the kitchen and you just think, oh, what was it? Why, why did I come in here? Is, uh, maybe that's just me, I don't know. Maybe, or maybe you guys have been there too. You walk in and you just think, why, why am I in here again? Oh, it happens to me all the time when I go to the supermarket. I only have to get a handful of things and I think to myself, there is one thing I need to get extra that I didn't write down, but it'll be easy to remember, so I'm not going to write it down. And then when you get there, you stand in the middle of the supermarket, you've got everything on your list, but there was that... That one thing you were supposed to go and get, and you can't quite remember what it is. I mean, is that what's going on with these ladies as they peer into the tomb? Are they looking in and just thinking, was there, was there something Jesus said? Was there something more to the story that we've forgotten about? Has it just kind of that significant statement that Jesus would rise? Has now kind of, they've forgotten it, and, oh yeah, what was that thing? No, actually, there's more to it. You see, in the first century, people didn't have a category for the resurrection. This whole idea of an individual being raised from the dead wasn't on anybody's radars. Now, now if, you, if you go back to the first century, you've got, you've got the Greeks, you've got the Jews, and you've got the Romans, all within this same context. Now, the Greeks are going to say, look, the body is the bad stuff, the soul is the good stuff. So at death, these two are separated, the body is finally free, so the spirit, the soul, is finally free from the body. So who would ever want a resurrection where the soul comes back to the body? So the Greeks really didn't believe in resurrection. Then, then the Jews, you've got a handful of Jews that believe in resurrection, but they believe in a collective resurrection, not of an individual. And the Romans, well, they really don't have anything to think about resurrection at all. So nobody has a category for the resurrection. So when Jesus says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to rise, they've not got a category in which to place his statements. Let me illustrate this. A few years ago, when I, when I first went to Quincy's house, so that's my wife, she's from just a couple of hours south of Seattle in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, I, I'd been there a couple of times before, and then, and then Quincy's dad came home from work one day, and he said, ah, oh, let's go to Seattle for something to eat. Let, let's, just, let's just go grab something to eat. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a second, we're two hours south of Seattle. Why are we going to Seattle for something to eat? So, so I said to him, great idea, it must be a good restaurant that we're going to drive two hours to. Where are we going to stay? We're not going to stay anywhere. We're just going to eat and come home. Wait, what? So you're telling me we're going to spend two hours in the car, then a whole lot of money at a really good restaurant, and then two hours in the car to come back in. So four hours in the car just for something to eat. Can't we go to Walmart and just buy stuff for beans on toast? Wouldn't that be so much easier? You see, I didn't have a category. Maybe some of you Americans understand this. We Brits don't have a category for driving four hours in the car just for something to eat. We won't do that. If, if I'm going to drive more than 30 minutes, I want to spend the whole day there. If I'm driving two hours, if, I, <laughs> if I'm driving two hours, I want to spend the night there. I, I, I can believe two hours just to go and have something. So I didn't have a category for his statement. I, it didn't really make sense to me. What do you mean four hours? 
You see what's going on as they're peering in, they're perplexed. Why are they perplexed? Because they're looking in. They don't have a category for Jesus' words that he has risen. So they need to be reminded. Look at verse 4 again. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Here we go. Here's the crux of the matter in verse 6. He is not here. But he has, everybody say that word, risen. Let's do it again. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and rise. Look at this, verse 8. And they remembered his words. Here's where the penny drops. Here's where the light bulb switches on. Here's the moment of realization. And verse 9, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. You see this moment of realization for these ladies right here. They saw the empty tomb. We're not really sure what's going through their head at that point, but the one thing that's not going through their head is resurrection. These two angels are there and say, don't you remember what he said? He has risen from the dead. Why are you looking for the living in the land of the dead? Quick. Hang on a second. The darkness of Saturday has just dissipated. The silence of God has now been broken. The penny has dropped for these individuals and they run back to tell the others. Verse 10. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who told these things to the apostles. So they run back. Verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe. Now this word is one word in the Greek, idle tale. It's, it's, it's a used word, a, a word used when someone has an, a hallucination and they don't know what they're saying. That's the idle tale word right there. So the, the, 11, in the, the 11 apostles and everyone else who followed him said, no, 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 that's an idle tale. Apart from one of them. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. I love this bit. Then he went home marveling at what had happened. That word marveling is it's reflecting, it's absorbing, it's digesting the news. So for all of the others who disbelieve this idle tale, Peter jumps up, he runs to the tomb, he stoops in, he looks, he sees the linen clothes lying there by themselves and his reaction is to marvel. Why? Why is Peter marveling? Why are these ladies chasing back to share the news with the others? Why is, is there this reaction? Because they, they realize one very, very, very simple thing, that they are not left in the darkness of Saturday, but have been brought into the light of new life of Easter Sunday. Why is Peter marveling? You know his recent history. He's denied Jesus. He's learned to trust Jesus' words. Why is he marveling? Because he realizes we are not left in the dark valley of Easter Saturday, but we have been brought into the light and the life of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? The darkness of Saturday, the anxieties of Saturday, the perplexity, the confusion, the sense of loss, abandonment, being left behind, that all evaporates in one instant when the penny drops and they see that Jesus Christ has actually risen from the dead. 
It's almost as though they do the logic right there. Hang on a second. If Jesus is risen, then we don't have to be there on Saturday anymore. We don't have to be in that place of darkness. We aren't going to live our lives in one perpetual long Saturday anymore. New life is now ours for the taking. And that's where we stand this morning. We can have exactly that same reaction of Peter. When we realize we're not stuck in Easter Saturday anymore. Because Easter Sunday, the resurrection, has come. Now here's the thing. If we were left in Easter Saturday, some things would have to be true about what we believe. I mean, if we were left in Easter Saturday, Jesus is just a good man. If if there's no resurrection Sunday, he's just a nice guy who had some quite good things to say, but also uh, some strange things to say about his divinity. I mean, if we're left on Easter Sunday, then Jesus isn't someone to give your whole life to. He's not someone to be followed. He's just a nice guy and you can pick and choose some of the things he says. If we're left in Saturday, Jesus is just a good man and that's it. And then if we're left in Easter Saturday, if we're left in that dark valley, then everything we do, everything we believe is pointless. It's futile. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is all futility. It's all pointless if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Our meeting here on a Sunday and every other Sunday in the year, forget it, you're wasting your time. If we're left in Saturday, forget about community groups and the transformative relationships you're building in there, forget that. And if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then how can you do anything in his name? Everything we do as Christians is just a waste of time if we're left in Saturday. And then if we're left in Saturday, then we can't have any ultimate hope. And we can have small bits of hope throughout life, but nothing beyond the walls of this world. You know, we can hope for small things. We can hope that work would get better. You can hope for marriage to improve. You can hope for your kids to live a fruitful and happy future. You can hope that your kids walk a good path, that your retirement works its way out. I mean, you can hope that your finances just don't get tough. I mean, you can hope for those things. You can hope that British spring turns up at some point. (laughs) You can hope that England make it out the group stages at the World Cup this year. You you can hope that your deployment in the UK is extended by 10 years. You can can hope that the person on the A14 doesn't drive out in front of you right now. You can hope that you get a ride in an F-15 Strike Eagle. (laughs) Please. (laughs) (laughs) now here's the thing if we are left in Easter Saturday we have no hope beyond the walls of this life if we're left in the dark, dark valley of Saturday we can't hope in anything beyond this world any hope that we do have is vulnerable to be taken away is vulnerable to be lost it's all insecure and unstable we can't hope in anything that has a guarantee if we're left in Saturday but you see what these people realize and why Peter marvels because we're not left in Saturday so what does that mean that means Jesus is more than a good man that means he's the son of God and it means he's alive that means he can be trusted That means he can be followed. That means he can be loved. That means he can be pursued. That means he is the saviour that your heart has been longing for your whole life. You see, if Jesus is risen from the dead, then he's everything. But it also means that our faith has a point. 
It was, we're not, we're not be, it's not all futility that we do. If, if we're not left in Saturday and Easter Sunday and the resurrection is a historical reality, then our meeting here isn't pointless. It means something. Your singing means something. Your prayers go beyond the ceiling. Your act of encouragement to the person next to you when they're feeling down in the name of Jesus actually means something. Community groups mean something. Working with the youth on a Friday night and throughout the week here at BRBC actually means something. It's not just futility. Our faith now absolutely has a point. And if we're not left in Easter Saturday and Easter Sunday and the resurrection is here, which we believe it is, then we can have ultimate hope. We can hope in something beyond this world. We can hope in the things that can be taken away. We can hope beyond the things that can be taken away. In something more stable, more assured, and more secure. You see, the resurrection is an act of defiance. The resurrection shakes its fist into your hopelessness. The resurrection shakes its fist in the face of your meaninglessness. The resurrection shakes its fist. In the face of you feeling forsaken, rejected, downcast, and lost and abandoned. The resurrection digs its heels in at the mere notion of hopelessness. Why? Because the resurrection proclaims the reality of life over all of us. And you've got to hear that this morning. The resurrection is a firm, fierce, history-shattering declaration that new life is ours for the taking. And that we can hope beyond the insecure hopes of this life. You see, the resurrection looks into your feelings of abandonment and says, the arms of the Father are open to all. Where you feel rejected, the resurrection means you can be accepted. The resurrection shakes its fist at your sense of purposelessness and says, no, there is the purpose of purposes now to pursue. And the resurrection shakes its fist at your feelings of depression and says there is light at the end of the tunnel and one day things will be better. The resurrection shakes its fist at death and says, no, life is yours. The resurrection shakes its fist at the times when we just say, I'm a little bit confused, God. I thought it was going to be different. It says one day it will. One day you will have the fullness of life. And it will be yours. You see, the resurrection is an act of defiance against such things and proclaims a message of life to people like you and me. Why can we marvel like Peter? Why can we chase back and tell everyone about the resurrection? Why can we do that? Because we are not left in the dark valley of Saturday. Because the resurrection is a historical reality that changes everything. All the difference a day makes. Let's pray and then we get to sing together. Jesus, you're alive and we're thankful we get to proclaim that today. Jesus, you offer us new life and we get to be thankful for that today. Jesus, we're united to you and we get to take joy in that today. Lord, help us to live in the light of the difference that that day made. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.